Welcome to the Self-Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self-Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Great stuff. Uh, So welcome everyone again for the second time for me, third time from everyone. My name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, we're delighted that you are. We're going to start by reading a passage from Haggai, but let me first just say, if you tried in obedience to Dan's command to try and uh, register for a Christmas Eve service today, you probably found that they're all full. Um, So we are working on that. We'll have uh, some solutions to that, whether it's more services or finding more space, but we just know there's a tension there. So Um, But thank you for trying to register, Uh, and we'll figure it out uh, this week. I'm going to start with Haggai chapter 1. You may never have read Haggai. It's an Old Testament book. It's about two pages long. You could go home and read it in about four and a half minutes this afternoon if you wanted to. And the start of it says this, In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord, through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Sheetal, governor of Judea. A lot of names there. You tracking so far, hopefully. And to Joshua, son of Jezodek, the high priest. And then this is the message. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house of the Lord remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You have, you eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. So we're going to leave Haggai for a second. Let's pray, and we're going to talk about some stuff and get back to Haggai. Jesus, thank you that you're present here with us. Uh, Thank you for this book that you breathed in and made it alive. And we pray as a group of people listening, you would breathe into us and make us alive in new ways. God, would you uh, take the comfortable amongst us and afflict us? Would you take the afflicted amongst us and bring us comfort? Would you do what you do regularly, which is to turn up and change lives? May we be transformed people. Amen. So we'll get back to Haggai. We're in a series called Advent Conspiracy. It's a series that churches all over the country take part in, um, and it's based on these four tenets. Worship fully, spend less, give more, and love all. And we are weak to spend less, which is easily the most boring of the three. Uh, So stick with me. I thought about paying you to stay awake, but that would have gone against the principle of spend less. So I decided it wasn't the best option for us, uh, and we're just going to trust you to stay awake. But we're going to start... for a second, not talking about Haggai, but by talking about the graffiti art scene in England, in Bristol, in the 1980s. Uh, Bizarrely, and you may know nothing about graffiti, in this one season, a bunch of incredible graffiti artists turned up in one spot at the same time. Now, when I say graffiti, there's a chance, chance that you hear this. 
So this is a fenceway uh, as you drive down the M40 highway in England. Uh, while you're sat in traffic that's about three or four hours long, you know, just these huge traffic jams trying to get into the city, someone has painted, why do I still do this every day on a side, on, a, on a fence? And, and of course, you get to sit and contemplate. Now, this isn't the graffiti we're talking about, although it might be that this is actually a little more poignant than, than we might think to start with. We're talking about graffiti like this. So this is the work of a guy called Banksy. Uh, and a lot of his art has this consumerist question. It talks about consumerism and asks questions about why we participate in the system that we do. So here we've got a group of people worshiping at a sale ends today sign. The next one, we've got someone jumping off a building to catch a falling shopping cart because they're so desperate for the goods in it. Uh, how about a third one where someone's actually trapped inside a shopping cart, hopefully not the same one that fell from the top of the building. And then um, the fourth one, here, someone has run, like a, it's a shopping bag of a, a shopping store in England, uh, and they're doing a pledge of allegiance to say that they will participate in the ways of consumerism with all of their hearts, even at the young age that they are. And then this one. This is a little girl who's lost this balloon. It suddenly disappeared from her grasp. She had it for a moment, and then it's gone. And this piece of work was one of the last known Banksy works that was available to purchase and went on uh, sale at Christie's or Sotheby's uh, sometime a couple of years ago. And I just want you to watch what happens as it goes on sale. So I love what's going on here. You have, on one hand, the deliciousness of a piece of work that's talking about the problem of consumerism going on sale for over a million dollars. And then what had happened is the artist, when he put it in the frame, had built a shredder into the frame. So the moment that it's purchased, he hits the button and the picture shreds, theoretically destroying all of its value. But then another delicious twist, this same picture, this same piece of artwork sold later for more money than it sold the first time because its fame had increased because it was the shredded picture. Isn't there something fascinating going on with our understanding of consumerism there and what value is? And then check out, go, let's go back to Haggai and think about what Haggai says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. It's this sort of message about the system. Now, when you hear Haggai, and I say he's a prophet, if you're unfamiliar with this whole church thing, you may hear something like this. This is Zoltar, uh, and this is Laura getting her sort of fortune telling from Zoltar at some place we were by the ocean. And Zoltar is a, a guy that will theoretically tell your fortune for $5 or something like that. And it probably works, I'm sure. Spend your money, it's fine. Uh, maybe it works, who knows, I'm no, I'm no cynic. But this is not what the Bible understands by the idea of prophet. We think prophet, we think prediction about the future, but this isn't really where the Bible would land. When the Bible talks about prophets, it's talking far, much, far more like Banksy, it's talking activist. So think about these four people. You've got Bono, who's done work with, um, with poverty all over the world. You've got Malala, who's done work with kids' education in places, especially for women in places like India, Pakistan, where young women aren't entitled to education. You've got Greta Thunberg on the bottom left talking about climate change. You've got Martin Luther King talking about race relations. Now, you may hate any of those people, and that's actually good for the illustration. 
Because a prophet got under your skin. An Old Testament prophet, while they may have heard a message from God, and that's accurate, that message wasn't so much on this day this will happen, on the next day this will happen. That message was, society is broken. Keep acting this way, and judgment will inevitably follow. If you keep operating a society on these lines, you will end up with a problem really, really fast. That was the idea of prophet. It doesn't take away the fact that God spoke to them, but their message was not about on dot, dot, dot day, this will happen. It was stop living this way. That's what you see with Haggai. You can't live this way. This is broken. You can't keep doing this to yourselves. So that's what we hear when we hear prophet. Far more Zach De La Roca from Rage Against the Machine. Check out these lyrics and see how they tie in with what we just read in Haggai. Play it again, Jack, and then rewind the tape, and then play it again and again and again, until your mind is locked in, believing all the lies that they're telling you, buying all the products that they're selling you. They say jump, and you say how high. That's the consumerist message, right? That's what we buy into, and that's what Haggai saw. Haggai came back from captivity. His whole nation had been taken into captivity, and then through miraculous circumstances, they ended up back in their home country. They'd been led by two incredible leaders, one guy who'd helped them rebuild the walls and one guy who'd helped them rebuild the temple. But when Haggai returned, instead of a focus on this, what he found was a group of people that were far more interested in trade agreements, far more interested in what they could get out of society, far more interested in making an extra buck than people that were interested in building the temple or building the walls. He saw a society that was broken, that were chasing the consumerist dream. And so when we read Haggai, when we look into these things, this is what we're talking about. I would suggest that we know this to be true. We need to experience tension when it comes to how we spend our money. And if you're uncertain about that fact, Jesus talked about money more than any other subject. Over half of his parables contain the subject of, of money and how you handle your wealth. It's all over his thinking. And so it's something that I, I would love us to wrestle with. And so I'd love to do that through a series of questions. First question is this. What would you do if you could buy whatever you wanted? If you could just go out and just splash cash at whatever you wanted. Now, the first thing that you might do is that you might say that, well, I'd have a short, sharp conversation with my boss because work would definitely not be on the agenda to start with. That was the answer that most of the church staff, when I gave them the question, were like, we're done with you in this place. They didn't say that. That wouldn't be right. They're here forever. Don't worry. Um, what would you do if you could buy whatever you wanted? One guy got an answer to that question. This is Luke Brett Moore. He tried to transfer $5,000 from a bank account that had no money in it. And the transfer went through, moved it to another account, and then moved 50,000, and it went through again. So he just kept moving more and more money, and each transfer went through until he eventually spent around $2 million just by transferring money that he didn't have. But what was fascinating is this. The first thing he did was buy a car, and then, he bought another car because that car was no longer good enough. And then when that car was no longer good enough, he bought another car. So he went from a Honda Civic, fairly basic requirement, to a Hyundai Velostar, and then finally to a Maserati. And with every step, he found that actually buying whatever he wanted just wasn't enough. Somewhere there was this, still this sense of dissatisfaction, still this sense of, ah, I need something more. The answer to the question, what would you do if you could buy whatever you wanted, it, it's not as simple as it sounds. 
It's not as simple as the Christmas wish list that a, an eight-year-old would make it sound. Ah, if I could only get more stuff, I'd be happy. It's treadmill. It's the hedonistic treadmill. It's this thing that we get on, and we have to keep moving to stay where we are. We can't just stop. We have to keep going. That's what Luke Brett Moore found. And I would suggest that's what the, the Bible would suggest as well. This is from a book called Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. The word of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. When he looked at what was available in life, he was like, it's, it's just nothing. It's, it's just empty. The book is centered around these two fascinating terms. On one hand, there's this character, this koaleth, this teacher or preacher, this thinker. And he's constantly got this theme that he keeps talking about, this, this Hebrew word, habel. Habel is fascinating because it, it, it has this sense of meaningless and nothing, but an actual better definition would be something like smoke. So this is Eugene Peterson's message version. These are the words of the quester, David's son and king in Jerusalem. Smoke, nothing but smoke. That's what the quester says. There's nothing to anything. It's all smoke. It's that picture. Have you ever maybe walked around a lakeside or, or seen what it is to see vapor appearing over the fields early in the morning? You see this thing, and it's beautiful. It just sits over the landscape. And then as the sun gets brighter, as the sun, like, its beams hit it, it just, it's gone. It's there in a moment, and then it's gone. This is what this word vapor sort of connects with. It's this thing that you can't ever really grasp. You think you've got it, and you open your hand, and it's gone. This is Habel. I think there's lots of different translations that, that we could land on, but I would say that one, as well as smoke and well as vapor, it's treadmill. It's the thing that you can never sort of stop moving to keep going. You can only turn the treadmill off. If you leave it on, you have to keep going and keep going just to stay where you are. And I think you and I know that. I think we know that spending more stuff ultimately doesn't make us happier. We can think that we want something, but it never lasts. We snap back to, to zero, so, to neutral so quickly. And so if that's true, if all of these people have spotted this, if these secular, what you might call prophets, like Zach de la Rucker have said it, if, if people within the Bible have said it, if Jesus has said it, and I think our hearts say it as well, I have this sort of question, second question. Why do we do it? If spending more doesn't satisfy, why do we keep doing it? Why do we keep going back to accumulating more and more stuff? Because we do. Every year, the whole world combined spends about a trillion dollars on Christmas. American credit card debt is now at about a trillion dollars just in this nation. And we do that while we know that one billion people don't have enough food to eat. 700 million people don't have access to clean water. These are necessities. These are things that we know, and still we treadmill, 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 and we buy more, and we acquire more, and we keep going, and we know it doesn't work. And I'm not telling you anything that you don't know, and my question is, then why? Why do we keep doing it? And I have some answers that may be helpful. Maybe one answer is comparison. 
we love to see where we stand compared to other people, and we have this sort of standard that we feel like we have to keep up with. A few years ago, Laura and I were in LA. We used to go to a conference every year, and uh, because I rented cars so much for work, they would always give me great upgrades. I would always have loads of points to spend. Uh, and, and so I would go, and they would usually give me something nice. And I, I remember one year I was there, and they gave me this beautiful BMW 4 Series convertible. And I was like a little kid in school. I was so excited about this car until something happened. I pulled it out of the airport, and we headed to the place that we were staying. And we pulled up at a stoplight next to a country club. And while we were there, this kid pulled up in a bright red Ferrari. If he was 16, he looked like a year older than he, younger than he was. I mean, he looked like 15, 16 years old. And he's driving around in this stunning car, pulling into his country club. And in a moment, all of my joy, smoke, vapor, gone, treadmill. It was this moment of like, I want a Ferrari to drive around in as well. Why don't I get a Ferrari? Could they not have upgraded me to a Ferrari? That upgrade does not exist, by the way. That's not like just the, the sales clerk being mean to you. There is no upgrade that gets you a Ferrari, I've been told. It's comparison. And it's based around this idea that we have to keep moving. The treadmill goes from one to two to three, and there's a better car that you need. It's built on this lie that, well, it will make me feel better than others. It allows me to feel for a second superior. I'm further ahead in the journey. I'm winning. I'm keeping up with the Joneses and maybe even overtaking them as well. It's comparison, but maybe it's also it's cover-up as well. A couple of years ago, I was flying back to England, and I was taking the kids back for Christmas, and we were sat in the first row of the coach class. And we got chatting, as I tend to do, with the, the guy in, in front of us. He was the last row of first class. And he gave us his free drinks coupons, coupons and stuff. He was an absolute delight, lovely guy. And he started showing me pictures of his Christmas at home. And Christmas on his, like their Christmas day, there were presents on every step coming down in this sweeping staircase that made its way down to the living room. And all over the living room, over every couch, there was presents, 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 presents. More than you could count, like the stars in the sky. And he showed me some videos of his kids running down and beginning to open the presents. And there seemed to be like joy there and everything. And then we got talking more, and he began to tell me what Christmas would look like for him this year. And he said, well, I'll get home on the 24th, and I'll be home till the 26th, and then I have to travel again, and then I'll be back on New Year's Eve, and, and we'll do a celebration, but then I have to leave on the 2nd, and I'll be gone again. To... And he turns out he travels about 250, 260 days a year. He's head of sales for some big organization, and he makes a ton of money doing it. But there was this moment, this like revelation, where I'm like, oh, this is a cover-up, right? You're buying these presents because you think it covers for the fact that you're never... You're never there. And if that's your life, that's not a criticism, I'm sure you experience that tension as well. Sometimes it's easier to buy an expensive presence or just tons of them to cover up for the fact it didn't actually take you time or energy. I actually can go and buy Laura a great present really easily without really thinking about it. I just go and buy something with diamonds in. And when it turns up, she's delighted, she's excited, but it's really not that difficult. I'm covering up for the fact that I didn't spend time thinking it through that I didn't really plan it, that there was no real energy that went into it. It's a cover-up. For this guy on the plane, it was, it was a cover-up. It's based on this lie that well, it makes me feel better about my problems. Everything isn't as I'd like it to be, so I, I spend to make up for that fact. Maybe it's cravings. 
They say that spending is as addictive as cocaine. There's an endorphin that's released that in the moment that you do it, you're like, I feel so good about myself. It's bizarrely as well, the same with emails. That ding that you get when an email comes in has an addictive quality to it. It releases an endorphin. Somebody wants you, somebody values you. Spending does this thing where it like for a second, we're like, ah, I feel great. But the problem is we have this huge capacity to snap back to neutral. So after doing it, we're like, no, didn't work. I need to do it again, and the treadmill jumps from three to four to four to five, and we have to keep moving to keep going. It makes me feel better for a while, is the lie. And then finally, another one, and this maybe is the most, the, the most dangerous of them all. It's caring. I remember once, uh, as I was about to graduate high school, uh, my friends and I, we had to wear uniforms. It was an English high school. And so the last year, instead of buying the traditional cheap uniform, we, we went uh, out shopping. And I said to my mom, I need like a wool suit, like something nice, because everyone's doing it. And so we went out together and bought a suit. And she spent more than she could really afford, I think. And then I went to school the first day in this new suit. And, and my friend said, oh, that's not real. It's fake. It's not that good. It's terrible. And my joy dissipated, vapor, smoke. So I went home and told my mom, well, yeah, they, they all said it wasn't that good, so I need to get something better. And her joy dissipated, smoke. We were both buying into the lie that, that well, actually, this will make someone else happy. It makes somebody else feel good. And it's treadmill. It's this thing that we have to keep going just to stay still. I think the truth with all of those things that we need to remind ourselves of uh, is this. Felt needs are not always real needs. We think we're tapping into something real, and there's just a possibility that we may not be. Now, that's just like the surface level. That's just like, you know, okay, that's, that's not that bad a scenario. The, the potential worst case scenario is this that there's something sort of insidious going on under the surface that we may not even be aware of. This is what Jesus said. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus was very comfortable in his demand on your soul. He was like, I want it all. Now, if you're in the room and you're not following Jesus right now, if you're watching online, you're not following Jesus right now, the great thing for you, I guess, is that you get to, you get to opt out on this one. Like, you can spend your money however you like. Now, I would suggest all of the, the other things are still true. You might find that it doesn't bring you the satisfaction you think, but, but Jesus actually ha doesn't have the same demand on you that he has on the rest of us that are choosing to follow him. He demands that he gets a say in how we spend our money. We can't separate that thing, that, that finance thing, from everything else and say, that's mine. The, the word money in Greek is this word mammon. It was actually a, a, a demonic god from history. It was this thing that, that was worshipped in different ways. And, and Jesus is saying, no, you can't, you can't choose me and that. You can't choose me and the money system. He wants all of us. Every single part he wants to have a say in. And that's maybe what's going on under the surface when we have this addiction to spending. There's maybe something that's pulling us away, something that's getting us to believe a different narrative is true. I love this passage. It carries on from what we read in Luke chapter 1 last year, last, last year, last week. Uh, we were talking about Mary's song that she sings as she celebrates that Jesus is coming. 
And it starts to hint that something is changing about the way that society functions. Same as the, the prophet's language. Something is about to change. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. There's this idea that society was based around, you could tell very easily who was blessed and who wasn't. The rich were blessed, the poor were not. And this Jesus entry into the world is going to bring that whole thing into question. And as he begins to teach, he says the same thing, blessed are the poor. He starts to make these outlandish statements. And he's constantly interested in the disbursement of wealth. And, and he doesn't mind you having it, but he does want you to think and embrace the tension of how you use it. The Advent conspiracy is based on this idea. We're choosing to engage with the real Christmas story in opposition to the modern Christmas story. We choose moments in which we can spend less in order to do something more significant. We talk about this tension with spending stuff so we can think about, well, what might we do with our money? What might the thing God is calling us to do be? And when I say, is there a better way, is question three. I hope by now the point is, well, there's got to be one, because it's not this one. Like, I hope there's that, that sort of idea lurking in the background. And I think there is. In that same book, Ecclesiastes, just a couple of chapters later, in chapter four, it says this, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. This writer, this Quoaleth, wrestles with the idea of contentment. He creates this picture of what it is to hold something, just one handful, just enough, with a hand open, versus trying to grasp, because as we looked at, vapor you cannot grasp. Simply about what you can hold. Paul, in the New Testament, will start to say some of the same thing. He'll start to talk about this idea of contentment. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all thing, all this through him who gives me strength. This is Philippians chapter 4. I have learned to be content. I have learned it. It wasn't something that came natural. He made a decision to learn it. And then look at that line at the bottom. I can do this through him who gives me strength. This isn't something he's done in and of himself. His relationship with Jesus has taught him to be content. You and I were invited into that. Whether you're following Jesus or not right now, you're invited into that. You get to practice this contentment. A person who lacks contentment in their life will often engage in when and then thinking. When I get dot, 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 then I'll be happy. That moment will be the moment to celebrate. That will be the moment where I'm like, ah, finally, I can stop running. But you never can, because the treadmill moves from seven to eight, from eight to nine. It just keeps going. The, the, the invitation of Jesus is this. You can step off the treadmill. You don't have to keep running. You can step off. So how can we spend less this Advent? And this lands us a little bit in that tension because in all that I've said, there is this still tension lurking. We all live in an economy that is based on what is spent and 
productivity. You have jobs, you have careers that rely on people spending money. That's a real thing. The subject isn't spend nothing. To a certain degree, I'm not saying we should just blow the whole thing up. I'm saying that you should think and I should think seriously about the, the what and the how much we spend. How can we do this? How can we enter into this, this advent? And I have a few ideas for you. Spend less money, give more time. Choose to find ways to be with people that you love. Now, difficult, again, in a pandemic, but there are people in your life that you can actually choose. Now, I'm going to choose the gift of time over the gift of money. How about this one? Buy less stuff, give more experiences. One of the things I've figured out with my kids is they remember for a long time the things that we did together. Even after they've forgotten the gifts that I bought them, we did this little challenge the other day. She asked, my daughter Elena asked me, what did, what did you get for Christmas when you were a kid? And I was able to pick, pick out a few things, but she asked me what I got last year. I was like, no clue. And she didn't either, in actual fact. But she remembers everything that as a family we enter into together. Give to needs and not to wants. There's that tendency, that temptation to just say, ah, whatever you want, I'm going to give it because it will make it happy. And yet there's something about needs that actually, the, the memory is more lasting, I think. We get to choose to think about what people need. With my kids, again, we, we buy them one present that they want, but the rest is based around, well, what do you need? And then something to read as well, because you always need a book. Uh, and then this one I love. In 2020, in this weird year we've lived in, choose David and not Goliath. We've embraced a 2020 where a shutdown or lockdown, a pandemic has made the rich richer. Organizations like Amazon and like Target and like Walmart have thrived and their wealth has gone up and up and it generally gravitates towards one person. This year in your spending, you could make a huge difference in the life of a local realtor, real, real, local um, retailer. You could actually make a difference there. Now, bizarrely, you may have to spend more per gift to do that. You may have to buy less gifts, but spend more for each individual gift. But isn't that worth it when you think that we just rely so much on convenience? You might have to accept that the shipping there will take four or five days instead of Amazon's instant provision. But we have people in our community, we have people in the area around us that they need that local business. That's what Marketplace was all about. It was about providing little retailers this option or ability to sell their products. Maybe this year the challenge is when you think about spending. Go and choose David and not Goliath. Go to the small retailer and make a difference there. These are the passages for this week. If you want to go back and look at them at home, I'm going to flick them up, uh, flick them up later. But we're going to move towards communion. And that brings us back to what Paul said. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. The idea, everything we're talking about is based on the fact that we're tapping into our Jesus relationship in order to do this. For me, that's where it begins. You can try and do all of these things by yourself, but in actual fact, it's following Jesus that empowers us or empowered Paul to live this life of contentment. And as we come to this communion thing, if you're at home, you can grab your communion elements. If you are here, hopefully you've got them and we're gonna take it together in a second. We'd like to land on this statement of Jesus. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The idea of Jesus' death was that it provided a feast that we were all invited to. 
He said, I am enough. One of the things I'm always staggered at when I read the, the Gospels, the Jesus narratives, I'm always staggered at how little difference his earliest followers believed Jesus made at key moments. You see him with a crowd of 5,000 in front of him. And there's this moment where all they can think about is, well, where do we go for food? How much will that cost? What happens if you split five loaves and two fishes 5,000 ways? How much does everybody get? And Jesus is stood right there with them. And they don't believe he makes a difference. And yet in every story, he does make a difference. He changes everything. That's what this passage invites us into as we approach this Advent season. We're invited into realizing that Jesus makes a difference. If you're not following him, you can make that decision for yourself before we take communion together. It's a simple process of saying, Jesus, I actually have been running life my own way, and that's got me into a mess, just like you predicted it would, and I would like to turn that life over to you. And it's recognizing that his death and resurrection, they were for you and me. That was for you and me. That is a game changer. And if you want to talk more about it, you can come grab me after the service. Uh, you can drop us an email here at South Fellowship. But we want to take this moment to celebrate that we're partaking in a feast together. And it was provided by Jesus. So think about some of the words that Aaron and the team are going to lead us through as we sing. We're going to think about that idea together for a few moments. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org slash give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South family. Have a great rest of your day.